Dr. Jody Magnus is a classical and biblical archaeologist specializing in ancient Palestine, that is, modern Israel, Jordan, and the Palestinian territories from the time of Jesus up to the 10th century. Her research interests include Jerusalem, Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, ancient synagogues, Masada, the Roman army in the east, ancient pottery, the Byzantine early Islamic transition, and diaspora Judaism in the Roman world. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. Jody Magnus. So again, I, I would have given you a formal introduction before this, but if you don't mind sort of answering some sure. simple contextualizing questions, although I'm sure they might get more complicated as we go, <laughs> what do you do? So I'm Jody Magnus. <laughs> uh, my official title is Keenan Distinguished Professor for Teaching Excellence in Early Judaism in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, but I am an archaeologist by training, um, specifically a classical archaeologist, which means that I specialize in the Greek and Roman world. Um, and I specialize particularly in the archaeology of Palestine, by which I mean uh, modern Israel, uh, Jordan, and the Palestinian territories in the Roman, Byzantine, and early Islamic periods. So think, you know, time of Jesus, basically up to uh, the centuries after the Muslim conquest. One of the reasons I'm fascinated by people like you and, and you in particular is that what you do would have had, may, I imagine, at least four or five prerequisite interests. You could have become interested in religion first or history or archaeology. Do you have a sense of which came first or did they sort of all converge? Oh, no, actually, it was always archaeology. Um, I wanted to be an archaeologist since I was 12 years old. Hmm. Uh, and uh, that was thanks to a, a history teacher in seventh grade in Philadelphia cool. uh, um, who introduced us to the ancient world. And I fell in love with ancient Greece mm. uh, and especially ancient Athens and um, decided I wanted to be an archaeologist. So ever since then, my interest was basically the archaeology of the classical world. For various reasons, I ended up in Israel, but still specializing in the classical periods in Israel. Okay. And if you don't mind maybe staying with this biographical theme for a second, seventh grade, at, at what point did you actually begin to articulate that interest or yeah. and, was that immediate or? Yeah. In okay. seventh grade. <laughs> how, how was that received? And then what did that look like by the time uh, you were going to make well, a decision maybe for undergrad? Yeah. Well, and I actually have, um, I mean, I don't have it here on me, but I, I have my ninth grade yearbook photo where underneath it says your ambition, mine says archaeologist. Wow. So, <laughs> but uh, how was it received? Well, it was not received well by my parents for a very okay. long time, or particularly my my father, who was very mm. practical. You know, he was a he was a child of the uh, Great Depression, right? So very practical, and you know, like what are you going to do with archaeology? You know, you're going to end up driving a taxi to support yourself. Um, but you know, he's a stubborn guy, but I think I inherited the stubbornness from him also. And, you know, my mother was actually quite supportive hmm. and, um, in the end, you know, fortunately they, they did support me. I mean, they weren't necessarily, I, you know, how it is parents want the best for you. Right. So, um, now of course they're really happy and everything and <laughs> they recognize it's fine. But, uh, initially, yeah, there was, there was some resistance there. Was there an ever was there ever a moment where you thought, oh shoot, this is 
maybe I should have yielded to their advice or their skepticism? Um, well, there actually, there, there was a, a moment like that, which was, mm-hmm. um, this is funny. I don't usually talk about this biographical, mm-hmm. this particular biographical piece of information, but, um, you know, I ended up, I ended up finishing high school in Israel, mm-hmm. which is a whole nother story and yeah. stayed. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then stayed there and did my undergraduate degree at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where I majored in archaeology and, um, and history. Okay. Um, and, uh, that was a very intense experience because at the time, um, the structure of the undergraduate degree at the Hebrew University, it was, it was kind of structured like German education at the time, which was a three-year BA, where it wasn't a liberal arts degree. You just did your courses in your major, or in my case, double major. Um, so I had three years of archaeology and history, very intensive, taught in Hebrew. I mean, it was, it was, right? And um, it was wonderful, but also exhausting. And by the time I got to the end of the three years, I was just, you know, <laughs> I was worn out. Uh, and um, and I was trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do now? And I, I was too, I, I just at that point, I didn't, I didn't want to continue with studying because it was just, I really needed a break. Um, and I, I couldn't imagine going on in archaeology at that point, taking more courses. Mm-hmm. But I was like, geez, I have to do something to support myself. What sure. am I going to do? Because uh, with a BA in archaeology, right? So um, it, now I'll date myself, but this was this was now we're in um, the late seventies, and uh, this was a period when there was that TV series LA Law, and everybody was going into law. And I thought, well, you know, I guess I could go into law. You know, um, I couldn't do medicine; I'm not good at that stuff. But and I can't stand the sight of blood. But um, but law, I could probably do law. You know, and. So uh, I, I, so I got to the end of my three years, right, right before the end of my three years of my BA, and I thought, okay, well, I'll apply to law schools back in the U.S. My parents were thrilled. Yeah. And uh, I took the LSATs, and I did pretty well on the LSATs, and I applied to, you know, some programs, and I got into some of them, uh, and I was uh, all set to come back to the U.S. from Israel, um, you know, and start law school, and that, uh, that it was it was late spring uh i was in jerusalem and um and nachman abigad who was a very famous israeli archaeologist had just discovered the cardo in jerusalem which was the major thoroughfare of jerusalem in the roman and byzantine periods it was a huge discovery and he gave a public lecture on it at this place called yad ben svi in jerusalem which is like which is it's a big deal place and this room was packed. I mean, standing room only. And I was there and I'm sitting in this lecture and listening is so exciting. And um, I'm sitting there, you know, and and just on the spot, I thought to myself, you know, I really don't want to go back to the U.S. Mm. And I really don't want to go to law school. I think I'll stay in Israel and work as a guide at a field school. And that's a whole nother story because field schools in Israel, it's like you work as a field guide and naturalist. Anyway, on the spot, I went and I talked to a friend there who happened to be associated with the field school and ultimately was very fortunate to get a job at a field school, the Ain Gedi Field School, which I think is the best one in Israel. And I worked as a guide there along the shores of the Dead Sea for three years. Mm. Um, so I ended up not coming back to the U.S. at that point. <laughs> Let me tell you, that phone call to my parents, that was not fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, hello, I'm not coming back to the US. I'm not going to go to law school, you know, mm. anyway. So that was, yeah, that was a little bit of a, 
a zigzag. And then ultimately, uh, after three years of really wonderful experience at Getty, I came back to the U.S. There's a whole other backstory for that. It was basically so I wouldn't get drafted into the Israeli army for the full two years. Uh, and what a life, um, so. <laughs> we're not even that far into it. I know. And um, so I came back to the U.S. and I was like, my my thought was, well, I'll, I'll come back to the U.S. and, and I'll work for a couple of years. Um, and, and then, you know, I'll come back to Israel when I'm too old to be drafted because they don't draft women over. They they want to draft me over the age of 26. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll come back to Israel when I'm too old to draft in another couple of years. And, and then I'll work as a tour guide because I really enjoy tour guiding. So that was my my goal. And I started to work I came back, I, I worked for a half a year for the Clean Water Action Project in Washington, D.C., which was a Ralph Nader organization. And then I, I worked for another half a year um, at the Israel Aliyah Center in, in um, Silver Spring, Maryland. But while I was working for the Clean Water Action Project in D.C., I got sent um, on a cross train to Philadelphia for a couple of weeks. And I actually hadn't been in Philadelphia since I was 12, because when I was 12, we moved from Philadelphia to Miami. But when I was growing up as a little girl, I, I remembered very well the university museum at the University of Pennsylvania, where I had seen my very first mummy. <laughs> and uh, so while I was on that cross train um, in Philadelphia for clean water, I went to the university museum and I started to walk around and, and you know, it's a wonderful museum. And uh, as I was wandering around, I was like, wow, you know, I really, I really miss studying archaeology. And I remembered hearing in Israel that Penn had a had a really good um, graduate program in classical archaeology. And so on the spot, I went upstairs to the department and made an appointment to talk to the chair. And um, like a few days later, came back, talked to him, applied, applied only to that program, yeah. applied, got in and started at uh, started graduate school at Penn the next uh, the next fall. So kind of a whole serendipitous series of events yeah wow amazing obviously you're talking to to a stranger um and so you might you might have left this out but those decisions sounded so easy i'm sure the phone call was difficult (laughs) (laughs) but you made those decisions sound so easy were all those decisions truly as easy as you just made them sound or were there moments where of serious doubt i'm just so impressed if that is the case how easily you followed your instinct i know it's just i i Honestly, I don't remember them being, I don't remember having serious doubts or any, I just remember on the spot making these kinds of really, you know, major life decisions. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think archae- it was really archaeology all along, right? And even when I, even when I started graduate school at Penn, my goal was not to become a professor at a university. That was not my goal. My goal was to get my PhD, go back to Israel and work as a tour guide because I really enjoyed tour guiding. Mm. Uh, and so there was a whole other series of events that eventually led to me um, getting a position as a professor um, in archaeology. Originally, it was archaeology, not religious studies in the U.S. And so, you know, that that's kind of what happened. But that was not my original plan when I started graduate school. Yeah. Wow. I, I want to go back. I think you said the the Cardo. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. The Cardo. Yeah. C-A-R-D-O. That word is the word for a north-south street in a Roman city. Mm. And uh, Jerusalem was rebuilt by the Roman Emperor Hadrian in the second century AD. So about 65 years after it had been destroyed by the Romans in 70. 
So the Emperor Hadrian rebuilt it and he gave it kind of the a Roman layout. And characteristic of the Roman layout is a grid plan with streets running north, south, east, west, and intersecting at right angles to create blocks. And running through the middle of the city, you have a major north-south thoroughfare and a major east-west thoroughfare. And mm-hmm. we we um, knew that there was this major north-south thoroughfare because, in fact, the line of that street is still there today. It's just that the modern ground level is above the ancient ground level. And what Avigad found in his excavations, he was able to excavate under the modern ground level, the modern street level, and he came down on the original ancient street. And that was what he was reporting on. Wow. Um, I'm flooded with questions. The first one we don't even need to address <laughs> is, is how do you excavate under a ground level? I, something I've never considered. Well, but... how do you, well, we're excavating. So, so you're, uh, you're excavating below the, the ground level today. So one of, sure. well, I know people really have a hard time kind of imagining this, yeah. that, that over time ground levels rise. Hmm. And that's especially tr- true in um, places that are continuously inhabited because garbage accumulates and dirt glows in. And then sometimes buildings are destroyed or abandoned and they crumble and people build on top. So ground levels tend to rise over time. And uh, so that's happened in Jerusalem over the course of the centuries. Jerusalem, of course, has been continuously inhabited for about 5,000 years. And um, since the second century AD, when Hadrian laid out those streets, the, the the lines of the streets have pretty much remained the same, but the ground level has risen over time. So if you if you dig under the modern street today, you go down below the modern street, you will eventually reach the ancient street, right? Somewhere below. Um, the problem is, and this was what Avigad was doing. See, Jerusalem is it's hard to excavate in like like in Athens, like a Rome, these are city or um Istanbul, these are cities that are, you know, have been continuously inhabited for thousands of years. And we know that there's ancient remains under the modern city, sure. but you can't just tear up people's houses and shops and the streets mm-hmm. to see what's underneath. If you're an archaeologist, right, you can't just do that. Yeah. And so in this case, what had happened in Jerusalem is that Avigad was able to excavate in a part of the old city, which is sort of the, you know, part of the ancient area of the city, Um that had been uh, destroyed between 1948 and 1967. And then when the Israelis took East Jerusalem and the old city in 1967, they rebuilt that area. But before the rebuilding, Avigad was given the opportunity to excavate. And and that's how he was able to come down on the ancient street below the modern street. Wow. So you're sitting in the audience of, remind me what that was? It was was the unveiling of that discovery? Yeah, it's called Yad Ben Svi. It's up. It's kind of hard to do. I don't know. I mean, there's nothing quite analogous that I that I know of in, you know, places I've been in the U.S., but maybe in like New York, there's something similar to this. Maybe. I don't know if the like 92nd Street Y in New York might be analogous, something, but it it's this it's this institution in Jerusalem um, that is mainly devoted to what they call land of Israel studies, archaeology, Jewish history, stuff like that. And um and and it's they they have like public lectures and symposia and things like that and they draw a very wide and it's it's kind of like the local intelligentsia you know mm. so they get like local scholars from various you know academics and stuff but also general public because 
um, many members of the Israeli public, and particularly the older members of the Israeli public, um, are very knowledgeable about this sort of stuff and very interested. And so you have these huge numbers of people turning out for these events. And, mm -hmm. and especially when a sensational discovery like Avigad made is being um, reported on. So, so you point to that as the moment where, I, if I'm remembering your story correctly, you, you make the phone call home and you say, you know, never mind uh, about the law school thing. Yeah. Yeah. So what, in that speech or... I'm not even really sure if I could picture it, but in that uh, event, <laughs> do you do you realize in that moment that you want to start doing your own digs? Was that the ultimate goal or were you just that this is really interesting and I don't want to do law school? Right. Yeah. The number two, um, I okay. doing my own digs was not something that I I have done some of my own digs. But let me tell you, it's it's hard sure. <laughs> and it's not something that a junior scholar should do. I mean, it's, mm. it's very difficult for various reasons. Um, but so that was not what I was thinking, but I was just thinking, you know, I've always loved archeology span and, and I enjoyed studying it. I just been so burnt out at the end of my th three years that I was just like, Oh, you know, but, um, but as I was sitting there listening to it, it was like, I'm just like, wow, this is, you know, this is just so great. And, yeah. and I really don't feel like going back to the U S and I really don't want to do law, you know, do law school. So that's kind of how it happened. Yeah. So, so it brought you back in. And, 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 and then, you know, at the same time, I'm thinking, well, and I didn't really want to continue uh, graduate studies in archeology span at that point, because again, I needed a kind of a break. But uh, I decided to, I decided on, again, really on the spot that uh, I wanted to find work as a, as a guide, a field guide and naturalist at a field school. So I guess I have to tell you a little bit about field school so you understand the context. Sure. Because again, there's nothing, there's really nothing analogous to this in, in the U.S. So there's a, a, a private organization in Israel called the Society for the Protection of Nature in Israel. And they run what are what are called field schools in different parts of the country. In the U.S., the Sierra Club is a little, but it's not exactly. And at every field school, there's a permanent staff of trained guides whose job it is to take groups, both Israeli groups, but also non-Israeli groups, on field hikes and natural naturalist stuff um, in the area in that part of the country. So I was at the Angeti Field School. Angeti is on the on the western shore of the Dead Sea. Um, and so the Angeti Field School covers basically the area from Jericho to the north and then down to the southern end of the Dead Sea to the south. And um and the people who work as guides at, at these field schools, um usually it's it's uh young men who have just finished their military service. And go and do it. And if you know, again, you're you're paid, not great, but you know, you're paid, and you get a place to live there and everything. Uh, and for women, most of the women who work as guides do it as their military service. So if you're really lucky, um, as a young Israeli woman, when you get drafted, you can do your military service as a guide at a field school. It's a real plum of a of a thing to get. Right, very hard. Um, I was very fortunate. I didn't fall into either of those categories. I, I had just finished my BA in archaeology, and it just so happened that the head of the Angeti Field School, which was my first choice of field schools, was looking for an archaeologist for the staff. And so it just it just worked out, you know, very well for me. And um, 
the reason I, I wanted, I decided on the spot at that lecture that I wanted to go to a field school and work at a field school is because when I was doing my undergraduate degree in archaeology at the Hebrew University, I felt at a disadvantage compared to my Israeli classmates who had grown up uh, throughout their lives, you know, in school, doing field trips, school trips all over the country. They had a really good, intimate knowledge of like the whole country, the various archaeological sites. And I didn't have any of that. Mm -hmm. And I thought the best way for me to sort of make that make that up is to work at a field school, which it, it was actually. Uh, so um, so that was why I, I thought on the spot of, you know, this is something and it's fun. This is something that I would like to do. And I was again, I was very fortunate to that it worked out. Can you help me picture what that work would have actually looked like that would have helped catch you up? Yeah. So, I mean, on a, on a pretty much daily basis, not every day of the week, but, you know, uh, I would take groups. So they they varied. So sometimes there were Israeli school kids. They ranged from little school kids. I mean, sometimes I had kids as young as like third grade, but mostly not. Mostly more like junior high or high school age. So sometimes school groups, uh, sometimes um, groups of Israeli families. Um, and then um, also I did a lot of guiding of of, of um, groups in English. So groups of, of like mostly students or youth who were coming from places like the U.S. or England or maybe South Africa or whatever. And then taking them usually on day hikes. Sometimes they could be longer trips, but usually day hikes around the desert along the western shore of the Dead Sea. So we could have a trip to Masada where I had a lot of visits to Masada where we would um, get up really early and climb up the snake path and see sunrise from the top of Masada. And then I would give them a tour of the, the top of Masada and then we would go down and maybe have a swim in the Dead Sea. Um, you know, the area around Ein Gedi, there are some beautiful canyons with um, with springs in them, a lot of archaeological sites in the area. Um, so kind of like that. Okay, fascinating. And I know that at some point you come back, at least, I guess, physically, you come back to Masada and yeah. I know that you said the, the Western Shore. Yeah, is, is yeah, because the Western Shore or the Eastern Shore? No, it's on the Western Shore. So, okay. so Qumran was also one of the sites that I took groups to. And that's initially how I became familiar with Qumran. And yeah. in fact, at that point, you know, Qumran at that point was not the big tourist site that it is yeah. now. I mean, now you go there and there's like bazillions of tour buses and there's a huge like, you know, building with souvenirs and, and a restaurant and snack bars and they have a film when you go in. I mean, it's this huge complex now, right? There was nothing at Qumran then. Again, we're in the late 70s. There was nothing there. There was, you would go there and there was like a like a, a an open shelter that had like a reed, reeds on top sort of to protect you from the sun. And a lone Arab man from Jericho hmm. who had a cooler with drinks that he sold. That was what there was there at the yeah. time. Yeah. So <laughs> when when were the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered? And then uh, yeah. would that have I, I I imagine that would have led to the boom and you know well no, actually that didn't lead to the boom. The, the <laughs> Dead really. Sea Scrolls had been no, not even close. No, really? no. 
Um, no, I'm used to not, not even being close, actually. No, that's okay. <laughs> but it, it's a, I mean, it's a logical conclusion, sure. right? But the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the, the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the winter spring of 1946, 1947. Oh, okay. um, and then, um, and then in subsequent years through the 1950s, most of the rest of them were found, right? Mm. Um, uh, but, but, but what happened is there was, so, so a number of things happened. So Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, was located in territory that was under control of Jordan from 1948 until 1967. And so first of all, that territory didn't even come under Israeli control until Israel took the West Bank in the Six-Day War in 1967, right? Mm. So there's that. Um, but but also the other another thing that that sort of happened is that the the rate the initial rate of publication of the Dead Sea Scrolls after they were first discovered was very slow, and it continued to be slow through basically the 1980s, and it wasn't until the 1990s when there was there were all these scandals about the delays in publication and there was a big shakeup in the team of people responsible for publishing that you finally begin to get a lot of, um, you know, scroll, a lot more scrolls coming out and then, you know, more public interest. And at around the same time, you also begin to get the um, sort of sensational claims about the site of Qumran, that Qumran was not a sectarian settlement where a Jewish sect that, you know, deposited the scrolls in the caves lived, but it was something else, a fortress or a villa or a manor house. And that then goes on. And so all of this kind of contributed and generated a lot more public interest, I think, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I also think that um, that it has to do with, I mean, I don't know, this, now we're, I'm an archaeologist, this is a little outside my field, but I think it probably has to do with um, the way Israeli tourism has developed over time, because, because once Israel took the area of the West Bank and sort of that, that the the northern part of the western shore of the Dead Sea, um, you begin to get a lot of of tours, day tours particularly, going from Jerusalem down to Masada, which is south of Qumran, right? Um, going down to Masada to visit, and then going back up to Jerusalem, and of course Qumran is right on the way. Interesting. Okay. And so you know it kind of ties yeah. in with that, and so pretty much everybody who does one of those day trips visits Qumran, right? Either on their way to Masada mm. or on their way back after they visited Masada. Yeah. So, so Masada would have been more well-known, even like the historical events of Masada would have been more well-known before Qumran. So people were passing through and, and you think eventually. No, no, actually. Um, okay. No, not <laughs> Wrong again. Well, no, no, no. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I guess you'd have to get I, this is just personal impressions, so yeah. I, I I can tell you for a fact there was nothing at Qumran sure. in the late 1970s. It was not the okay. major tourist site that it is today. I can tell you that, and I can say that at that time Masada was a, a major hmm. tourist site. I think one of the things that made Mas that helped uh, boost tourism to Masada was the construction of a cable car to hmm. the top, which uh, was in 1971, and made it much easier for people to get to the top, and then. In more recent years, that cable car was replaced by another cable car that goes, the, the first cable car, the initial one, didn't quite reach all the way to the top, and the new one does. Hmm. So it's made it possible for even more, you know, larger numbers of people to go. Um, but I, I, 
but yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I, yeah, it, it's true, it, but it is true. I mean, I, I just, people were not visiting Qumran in, in such huge numbers. Like now the site wasn't as, as developed for tourism as it is now. Hmm. Um, so yeah. But, uh, but still you were giving day tours there, correct? I was giving day tours. Yeah. Right. I was giving what tours. Are those, what do those tours entail? I'm, I'm curious given now what your expert level of you know knowledge is on the site versus then what you might have been thinking or what you even knew about that oh place. yeah well no i mean i knew, i mean i knew a little look i had a bachelor's degree in archaeology at that sure. point and and i had studied in jerusalem so i mean i had it wasn't like i was completely uninformed about it and sure and you know for the purposes of tour guiding i read you have to realize again the tour guiding that i was doing was was mostly to um students youth group you know students, youth groups, Israeli school kids. So we're not like talking specialists sure. or anything like that. And when you're, when you're doing that, you're, you have to aim your level appropriately, right? Mm. Because that, you know, sure. um, and you have to realize that my job was not just guiding archeology. span I was a field naturalist also. So these were desert hikes. So Qumran, mm. it wasn't like now tour groups get on and off the bus at Qumran. We were doing desert hikes in the area that included Qumran. So we mm. might start up at, there was like, for example, behind Qumran, there's a, a Herodian site called Korkania. And then there's this valley there, the Bukea. And then you go, there's, then if you continue, there's another site, Wadi Musa. So we would do like a whole series of, you know, a whole big circle of like a desert hike. Uh, and my job was to, um, first of all, marshal everybody through safely, uh, sure. but also point things out along the way. So not just archaeology, but also the wildlife, the plants, you know, all of that. I've never been very good at plants, mm. but fortunately I was in the desert. Yeah. So it wasn't like I had, had to learn a lot of plants, but um, never been all very good at that one. Um, never been very good at birds, but fortunately there was a limited kind of repertoire of birds that you would usually see, but that was kind of the, you know, the sort of thing. And then of course, what I did also very much enjoy was the geology, the local geology and any, anyway, all of that sort of stuff. So it wasn't just you know, we're going to Qumran. We're doing a whole series of hikes, and um, in Qumran, in particular, the the hike that we would start at Nebi Musa, which is a very interesting site. Mm. You would come down behind Qumran. There's a steep cliff, and you would come down on this kind of zigzaggy, narrow trail. You know, uh, a rocky trail. So that kind of thing, right? I'm realizing that we have about a half hour left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I'm sorry if I don't hit everything that you're truly an expert on, but I'm so fascinated by the origin story here. <laughs> if you don't mind, jumping back to UPenn, mm -hmm. so your stateside, um, <laughs> there's a part of me that even wants to know how you got to go to high school in Israel. But <laughs> That's the, a story too. Yeah, <laughs> for the, I would love to get the... Have? Sorry? How much time do you have? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe I'll get you on the on the other side of your trip, but let's say, okay, you're stateside, you're at UPenn. Did you have it in your head that you wanted to return to those sites in an intellectual way or? Oh, yeah, actually, that's very interesting. So um, when I enrolled in the, so again, when I enrolled in the PhD program at Penn, my mm. goal was to um, go back to Israel and be a tour guide, right? But mm. I did have to write a dissertation. Sure. Of course. Yeah. And I and and my interest was in the classical periods in Israel. Um, and my 
So initially, I wanted to write a dissertation on, I came in actually wanting to write a dissertation on the Byzantine monasteries of the Judean desert, because Hmm. in the Byzantine period, and now we're talking what you might call the early Christian period. So the period after Constantine legalizes Christianity. So we're talking fourth, fifth, sixth centuries AD. During that period, dozens and dozens of, of monasteries or monastic establishments were established throughout the Judean desert. So we're talking again, the area of Jericho and then down along the Western shore of the Dead Sea. Um, and I had become familiar with a lot of these when I was a guide at Ain Gedi. And um, they had not been systematically studied. Uh, there was an old book uh, by a guy named Chitty called The Desert, A City, um, mm-hmm. about the monasteries, but archeologically, they really hadn't been systematically studied. And um, and that, it, they really interested me. I, I liked the Byzantine period. I was interested in it. And uh, so that that's what I came in wanting to write on. Um, I uh, consulted with, you know, the my professors at Penn to make sure, you know, this was okay with them. And then what happened is uh, that sort of that summer, the, the summer like after I finished my first year, I think it was at Penn, I was back in Israel uh, and and working on a dig. And um, I happened to be at Hebrew University, my alma mater at the Institute of Archaeology, and I was in the library. Uh, and um, I found out that uh, two graduate students in archaeology at the Hebrew University were writing their dissertations on mm. this very topic already, like they had already started. Oh, on the monasteries of the Judean desert. Both of Man. them, um, people <laughs> who I who I know. I mean, actually, one of them was a classmate of mine in ancient Greek as an undergraduate. Mm. So I, I mean, I knew I knew both of them. But they had both each one had already started writing on that topic. And I was like, oh, I was crushed. I was like, yeah, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? This is like, you know, I'm thinking, well, yeah, but no, two people are I can't do it. Mm. So I'm in the library and I was having a conversation about this with the uh librarian at the time. Uh in the Institute of Archaeology has its own library. And the librarian was named Nira Nevesh. She's since passed away. But anyway, mm. so I'm talking to her and I was like telling her, I said, you know. I'm just, I don't know what to do. I have my heart set on writing on this topic. And she says, well, you know, you could write about Byzantine pottery. She says, she says, nobody's ever written about it. Nobody's ever studied it. She says, and people have kind of, she used this term in Hebrew. She's like, people have been buzzing around Mm. like bees, but they've never like, and I thought to myself, I thought, you know, hmm, that's a really good idea. I like pottery. I always did like pottery. Mm. And it's Byzantine, and it's true, nobody had ever done it. I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. So I came back, got back to Penn, and I spoke to my professors and advisors and everything. And they were like, yeah, fine, found, you know, an advisor who could work with me on it. And that's eventually what I ended up writing my dissertation on, was the late Roman and Byzantine pottery of Jerusalem. Uh, And so, yeah. (laughs) Did you ever go back and read their dissertations? The two oh, yeah, that- sure. Of course. They, yeah, both of them. And they're, they're, they publish their dissertations as books and there are yeah. uh, important references uh, on the topic. Absolutely. Did you, I was looking at your, the titles of some of your books. Did you publish your dissertation as a book at some point? I did. My dissert, I, that was my first book, um, which I had a two-year postdoc after I finished my dissertation and at Brown University which gave me time to uh, work on my dissertation for publication. So it was published 
the title, I, I reorganized it, you know, it's, but um, it's called Jerusalem Ceramic Chronology, uh, circa 200 to 800 CE. It's no longer in print. The mm. press actually uh, ceased to exist a number of years ago. I have a pile of them. I, I think the few copies that are left. Um, oh. But yeah, that's, uh, that was, and it, I mean, not to sound immodest, but it's still a basic reference for, you know, for people who dig in Israel and especially in the area of, of Jerusalem, if you find pottery that dates to the Byzantine period, this is where you look to see what you have and what it dates to. Wow. So cool. I was, <clears throat> obviously I, I don't have a deep knowledge of your work, but I had one title that stuck in my mind, the stone. stone yeah, and everybody. Oh, I know. I, that, that one was just caught my eye. And, title. Yeah. and I saw that obviously there's pottery on the top of it. So I thought that's what you were talking about. <laughs> no, no, okay. that my stone, my, uh, the Jerusalem ceramic chronology was published in 1993. Mm. The stone and dung oil and spit was published in 2011. And it's, it does include a lot of my work includes something about pottery, but it's not, it's not technical. The The Jerusalem Ceramic Chronology is a technical archaeological book. I mean, mm. unless you're an archaeologist, a field archaeologist, you're not going to, it's not something you'd, you'd use. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I, I think at this point, I'd be really curious, especially even though the Byzantine monastery work didn't pan out. I'm so curious how you became so interested in, in this sort of religious archaeology. Um. You know, I, I didn't think about it as religious archaeology. Well, a Byzantine <laughs> monastery, and I'm thinking yeah, about Qumran. I, and... I know that's that's kind of funny though, but I never thought about it. Like and I think that. on your website just... it talks about you know Jewish life around the time of Jesus. Right, right, yeah. And no, then that's even true. Yeah. my ter very tertiary understanding of Qumran and Masada, they both strike me as these, if I understand them at all, <laughs> which I might not. Uh, there, if there's a line that I could draw, you know, through again, my absolutely ignorant perspective, they both seem like these religious holdouts, right? These Jewish religious holdouts, uh, Masada famously sort of like that last stand kind of thing. And then in Qumran, if I understand that correctly, you know, where they're sort of burying the scrolls so that they don't get destroyed as the Roman empire takes over. Right. Is that Obviously, something really, very yeah. roughly yeah if, yeah. We, if i wanted that, to that's a very very rough spending a little bit of time but no but it's funny that you say that because um i can see why you mm. you know why you think that right yeah and so and and, and so let me just clarify so my sure. interest all along was not in religion per se mm -hmm. my religion my, my interest all along has been in the classical world mm -hmm. right and i ended up through a series of serendipitous events specializing in the classical periods in Israel. Mm -hmm. It's hard to work in Israel and avoid religion. Sure. <laughs> right. So, I mean, by definition, it kind of enters. Yeah. But that wasn't what drew me, right? What drew mm -hmm. me always was the archaeology, the science of archaeology, right? The science. And, and it's funny, my current dig, which has been going on now for over a decade, is an ancient synagogue. Right. And yeah. one of my major fields of, of you know, sort of sub expertise is ancient synagogues. And yet again, my, in, my I'm drawn to it, not not because of the religion, per se, but rather the archaeology part of it. Mm. I'm, I'm interested in knowing 
well, what archaeology tells us about, you know, people who lived 2000 years ago, 1500 years ago, whatever. Right. Um, and I and I and and when I when I ultimately finished my dissertation and then the postdoc at Brown University and I got a job, the job that I got, which was a great job at Tufts University, was not in had nothing to do with religion. It was in a department of classics, actually. It was part in classics, part in art history, and it was a job in classical archaeology. I taught classical archaeology for 10 yeah. years at Tufts University, meaning Greek and Roman archaeology. Sure. Um, the Then I was invited in 2002 to, uh, to apply for this position at UNC, which I still, where I still am. Mm. And, and that this position is in a department of religious studies. And in fact, the position itself is not an archaeology position. It's mm. early Judaism, meaning Judaism in the time of Jesus. And when yeah. I was invited to apply for the position, I I told them I said I said well you you all realize I'm I'm an archaeologist right I don't I don't have any formal training in religion hmm. I my training's in archaeology my undergraduate degree is in archaeology my graduate degree is in archaeology I don't have my undergraduate degree was not a liberal arts degree so I only did archaeology and history I didn't do anything else so so. It, so I kind of I ended up there and they were fine. They're like, that's fine. We like what you do. We know what you do, you know. Mm. Um, so so anyway, all along, my my interest has been in the archaeology side, the classical world side. But I did, you know, end up in a department of religious studies. And and one of the things and I think probably most academics would tell you this, your academic setting um, influences your research and the way that you look at things, right? Because mm. I interact with colleagues that go now to certain meetings. And so it is true. I've been drawn more into sort of the sort of Jewish stuff because I have to teach early Judaism and <laughs> I go to conferences anyway. So it's true, but that wasn't, that was, I was not coming from, you know, looking for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, if that makes sense. No, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. It almost makes more sense. <laughs> I don't know if too many people are, you know, thinking about i i certainly don't meet too many young people who are you know setting their sights on you know archaeology and religion <laughs> i don't even i don't know if i meet too many people who want to do either of those things right. certainly not, certainly not well it, you know and a lot of people and i get you know i get asked a lot right by people what um what my research has to do with my personal faith right mm. as if as if somehow i'm doing this because I want to affirm or prove or support sure. or whatever, you know, my personal faith or for that may matter, maybe the faith of others. Hmm. And that's, it's not even a factor for me. It's yeah, not, yeah. you know, it's not like, well, but no, it's not, I'm doing this from a scientific for scientific interest. And, you yeah. know, it happens to deal with religion. Yes, it's true. And ancient Judaism or, you know, Byzantine period, you know, Christians or whatever, but it's not, coming from that yeah have you ever this might feel like a bit of a stretch but have you ever come across the poem a hole in the floor by <laughs> richard wilbur do you know this poem no it's a it's a really interesting short poem but he the the speaker is essentially getting some part of his house renovated i guess and a hole a, you know there's like a hole in the floor and he looks through the floor and the way he describes it i could just read you a line if you can humor me, I don't, this, these names don't mean anything to me. They might to you, I imagine. Um, staring down into the, into the now, 
at four o'clock in the evening as Schleiman stood when his shovel knocked on the crowns of Troy. And there's a there's this there's this line for God's sake, what am I after? Some treasure or tiny garden. And I I have (laughs) to imagine, you know, this might be forcing it a little bit. Not that I think you're trying to prove your faith or anything like that, but I am curious, like what. I don't think you get to where you are (laughs) in any field if you're not really interested. I I don't know if you're interested in finding something, but but I'd be curious, like what you you started to describe it earlier. You're interested in what people were doing 2000 years ago. I wonder if you can flesh that out for me. Like what yeah. exactly sure. no, that's drives great. you towards that? Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's great because it gives me an opportunity to explain what archaeology is and what it's not. Right. So yeah, yeah. the kind of popular perception is that archaeologists, you know, archaeologists are treasure hunters. You think of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Sure. We're not treasure hunters. We don't get to keep what we find. Everything yeah. that I find belongs to the state of Israel. I don't keep it. Um, nor would I want to. Yeah. Uh, so, so archaeology is is the study of the past, right? So, and I, I've had this conversation with some of my colleagues in my department about who said that what I am an is a historian, and I'm not an historian. I'm an ar- I'm go through this, but I'm not an historian. I'm an archaeologist. Now, now you're an historian. No, I'm an archaeologist. So, I understand from their point of view, history is the study of the human past. So if we define history as the study of the human past, then archaeology is also history, right? But from an archaeologist's point of view, there is an important distinction. So historians, people who are trained as historians, learn about the human past by reading written documents, right? What people wrote and left behind, what they tell us about the past. Um, Archaeologists learn about the past by digging up the remains of human material culture. Human material culture means anything that people manufactured and left behind. So houses, tombs, pottery, stone tools, whatever, anything that people manufactured and left behind, we dig that up. And so the and so what archaeology is is excavation is the process to retrieve the data that that gives us the information to shed light on a particular time and place in the human past, right? And to tell us about certain aspects of life during that particular time and place. And as archaeologists, basically, again, we're scientists. I consider myself to be a scientist. So like all scientists, we dig because we have research questions And we hope that the material that we dig up will help us answer those research questions. Hmm. And so, for example, my current dig, which is in Galilee, I'm digging an ancient Jewish village with an amazing ancient synagogue. It's called Hukok. The site is called Hukok. Um, I started this dig because, because I disagree with some of my colleagues, especially in Israel, about the fate of Jewish villages in Galilee after they come under Christian rule beginning in the fourth century. Mm. Because many of my colleagues think that that, uh, Christian rule was oppressive to Jews and that these Jewish settlements declined and maybe even some of them disappeared. And my impression from the archaeology was always exactly the opposite. Mm. So I came to excavate at Hukok to do like a a test case. Let's take a, a Jewish village in this region that was inhabited in this period and excavate and see what we have. 
And uh, what we're finding actually is supporting my view. Doesn't mean it's true for every site, but at least at Hukok, we have evidence of a Jewish village that continued to prosper and flourish in the centuries after it came under Christian rule. So the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries, right? So that is why we dig, because we have one or more research questions that we hope we will be able to answer through excavation. And I also like to explain and emphasize that the goal of archaeology is not excavation. That's the part that's sexy, gets all the attention. It's also fun. But the goal of archaeology is not excavation. It's publication. Because archaeology is a destructive process. During the course of excavation, we destroy the remains as we dig them out of the ground. Once you dug that stuff out of the ground, you can never put it back the way it was. So archaeology, therefore, is not an exact science. It's not a hard science because in the exact or hard sciences, the goal is to replicate the experiment. Mm. In archaeology, you can't replicate the experiment. You don't get a second bite of the apple. And therefore, you have to, when you excavate, excavate very carefully. There's a specific methodology and record everything that we do with every means possible. And then ultimately publish everything that you did. Because only in that way do you preserve and make accessible all of the data that you destroyed during the course of the process of excavation. And so uh, now I'm about to start my uh, last season of excavation at Hukok. I could I could actually continue. Nobody has said to me I can't continue. I could <laughs> I could continue indefinitely. Um, but we will be finishing the excavation of the synagogue this summer. We've been going since 2011, minus two COVID years. And uh, and at this point, um, it is important for us now to, to turn to the process of publication. Mm-hmm. I have three shipping containers filled with excavated material on the grounds of a kibbutz in Israel, which mm-hmm. all of that material needs to be processed uh, and published. And it's going to take us years to do that. So it doesn't get as much attention, not as sexy as the process of excavation, but um, actually the most important part of archaeology is the publication of the material. I, I almost imagine historians and archaeologists having sort of a rivalry analogous to the police and fire department where you have sort of Thanksgiving Day football games. Uh, no, <laughs> actually, no, we don't. Uh, well, but, so, um, so let me yeah. ask an actual, a serious <laughs> question. What is the relationship? So I would, I would imagine that, you know, that that poem mentioned you, you corrected me on the pronunciation but schleiman or however i would yeah. say it schleiman uh-huh. schleiman <laughs> you know he, i all that i know about him is that he was obsessed with homer and i'm sure that's not the whole story but i would imagine that archaeology depends on history and history depends on archaeology am i naive to yeah. think there's a symbiotic sure, relationship no, no, absolutely. there absolutely no absolutely and by the way so schleiman of course dug at troy mm-hmm. and you're right he was kind of obsessed with homer uh, and and there is a little bit of an analogous situation in the Holy Land with, you know, the Bible, right? Mm. With a lot of people coming to dig in Israel, especially earlier generations who were who were doing basically what Shlimon was doing in Troy, trying to find evidence of the Bible, right? Sure. Or, you know, yeah, yeah. his Bible. Um, and so, yeah, certainly there's a large that's not what I do. Um, yeah. But, you know, but then but and it's mostly true of, you know, earlier generations and Schliemann, of course, was was in the 19th century. So um, but no, it's not it doesn't it's not like that. I, I mean, it actually 
the goal of both historians and archaeologists is to understand the human past. Mm-hmm. And so what ideally what we want to do is to use all uh, our, our, our knowledge of the past, especially we're now talking, you know, let's say 2000 years ago, our knowledge of that period is so incomplete, mm. uh, right? We have, you know, the sources that we have, they're very patchy. We don't have full coverage. The, the information that we have is often biased, especially if it's literary, you know, written by ancient people. Um, and so the goal, if the goal is to understand the human past, obviously we want to use all of the information that we have. And so, of course, archaeologists and historians ideally draw on both literary sources or written sources, historical documents, and archaeological evidence. And those those sources also give different kinds of information, right? I mean, um, you can excavate, as an archaeologist, I could excavate a house, and I might be able to identify a room was used as a kitchen and dates to a certain period, and other another room might have been used as a storage room or whatever, and Maybe I'll be able to tell, you know, through the animal bones, what kind of uh, animals they were they were raising and consuming and how they were cooking them. And maybe through paleobotanical analysis, I can tell about the environment and what kind of crops they were growing and stuff like that. Mm. But that information isn't necessarily going to tell me what the people in that house were thinking or what they believed. Mm. And by the way, history won't necessarily give me information about the specific inhabitants of that house. But literary sources might tell me more generally about the people who lived in that region in that Mm. time and what they believed. If you go back to the Byzantine monasteries again, right, that kind of a thing. Right. So um, or or even for, you know, my site, right, a Jewish village in Galilee in, you know, the early Christian period. So so we have we have sources that um, provide different kinds of information about the past and can be used sometimes in a complementary manner, even if they, they, they provide different kinds of information. Right. Yeah. It just, it makes the understanding of the past sound so difficult and I'm, and I'm it sure is. it is. I think we just, it is. Yeah. as the casual consumer, I just take it for granted. Right. I, I don't realize right. how difficult it is to actually, you know, corner the market on the truth yeah. of what the past looked like. Well, they're, I mean, truth, right? Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. uh, but one of the things people don't realize is that if you want to do the kind of thing that I do, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of archaeology, so our classical archaeology or biblical archaeology, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, one of the first things that you have to do as an undergraduate already is start studying the relevant ancient languages. Mm. Because you can't do this without being able to read the literature in its original language. Sure. Uh, so, you know, I had to study ancient Greek and Latin and Hebrew and, you know, whatever. Right. Because, yeah. Right. Yeah. Even if I'm not a specialist in that literature, part of the training requires you to be able to read in the original languages. Wow. This is I'm terrible at asking final questions, so <laughs> I'm going to I've given up on <laughs> trying to punctuate the conversation with a great big one but this <laughs> is a your argument for archaeology sort of providing this data that a primary document can't provide or can as easily provide um almost sounds like i don't know if you've heard this adage it's you know 
don't tell me what you do, you know, sort of show me, don't tell me what you believe, show me your calendar, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It seems really difficult, though, if you're looking at one village, right? To then generalize. How, how does archaeology, right. is this yeah. a massive question? Right. How does archaeology yeah. go right. one site and then generalize? Yeah. What right. is that? How, does, no, how do they a, tackle that problem? Right. That's a great question. And so, so Israel is probably the most intensively explored country on earth from an archaeological point of view. Hmm. Um, and so lots of excavations around the country, lots of surveys, meaning people have walked around and documented what they can see on the surface of the ground. And so there are a lot of other sites in Galilee, villages, Jewish villages of the same period that have been excavated. And so I have a specific disagreement with some of my colleagues, especially some of my Israeli colleagues, but not only, about the interpretation of the archaeological evidence at other sites hmm. and how this all fits in together into the picture. And so you're absolutely right. I mean, you wouldn't be able to just, if you only had Coke and nothing else, sure, you wouldn't want to say, this is the picture for all of Galilee. Um, but we do have other sites. And my disagreement stems from a different interpretation of the excavated evidence, because that's the other thing about, you know, people think that, again, archaeology is a science, but people think that science is completely objective and gives you like the absolute truth, right? Sure. And that's not true. Anybody who does science knows that science is not objective, mm. that science requires a process of interpretation. And also, by the way, that um, science that scientific methods don't answer every question. It's a matter of answering, of asking the right questions. Because different methodologies um, have, every methodology or every science has its limitations. And you have to know what kind of questions that methodology can answer. And so it is with archaeology. Archaeology, again, is equipped to answer certain types of questions and not other kinds of questions. But it's also a matter of interpretation. The evidence itself has to be interpreted, has to be dated. How do you understand the levels, one above the other? How do they relate to each other? Is this structure that we're excavating actually a house, or is it something else? Is this room a kitchen, or is it something else? Tons of interpretation. Mm. So... The, the reason why I started digging at Hukok is because I got to a point where I disagreed so much about other sites in Galilee with other colleagues that mm. I decided I needed to excavate my own site hmm. that's similar to the others to see what the picture is with data that I control. Yeah. Right. I, so, I would, sorry. Yeah. No, that's. I would be bad at your job for myriad reasons, but. I, in particular, I imagine it would be really hard for me to spend time on site and not try to picture these people and tell myself a story, right? And even That's grow right. attached to that interpretation. I imagine that has, you know, that becomes problematic in this sort of scientific interpretation. Do you, do you ever struggle with that where, you know, yeah. you've chosen this site now? And you've almost chosen it to disagree with your colleagues. It's really hard for this not to be, you know, this place not to be your champion. You know what I mean? Right. No, I, I completely understand. And um, and I think that's that's some, it's a very, you know, that's a very natural human sure. kind of thing to do. And I think it's true, you know, um, consciously or, or not of, of mm. some of my colleagues. 
and I I've been conscious of it myself. Um, and I've been I've been trying, you know, and this is why, look, I work with a huge team of people. Um, I have a staff of about 20 specialists on my team mm. and um, and everybody's responsible for, you know, different aspects. And so, first of all, it's not just me coming along and saying, well, this is this and this is what it is. Right. We all work together. And if and if, you know, I'm off on something, some, you know, so first of all, I'm so there's that. Mm. And the other thing is that what we try to do is use all of the data that we have together to see is this right so so again one of my main points of contention is the dating of these of these villages right and um so we're using every possible method to to try and date what we're doing and seeing do, does this support or does it not and right now we we've been working for quite a while actually on a series of radiocarbon dates uh, for the synagogue building and working on the publication. And I don't, I don't specialize in radiocarbon dating, right? That's not my thing. So I have specialists who I'm working with who are, who are doing the crunching of the data and radiocarbon dating. It's also not, it's not like you just get the date and that's it. Like, you know, they tell you, well, this was built in, you know, whatever year it doesn't huh. work like that. So there's a whole methodology to taking radiocarbon dates and having to somehow crunch the number. I don't even know what the terminology. Yeah, um, and I so it's, it's, yeah. So, I mean, and so what I've said all along is, okay, let's, we'll dig up the, we'll dig this up and then let's see what the data tell us. And mm. either the data will support or will not support what, and if, if the data tell us something else, then, okay, then I, then I've just, I've been disproven. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now I know though, but yeah. in this, but so far, so far, what we've got does support my point of view, at least for this village. And therefore, I think by way of extension, the interpretation of analogous remains at other villages in the region from this period. Mm. Dr. Magnus, we are at time. I, <laughs> I, I'm fascinated. I have a million other questions I'd like to ask you, but at this point, I want to wish you well on your trip. I'm so <laughs> well, excited. Thank you. Yeah, I know you're not going to come back with any material, but I can't wait to see what you do come back with. <laughs> Um, well, you can check out our discoveries on our website, which oh, yeah, the, right. the dig website is hukoke.org, which it's spelled really weird in English, H-U-Q-O-Q.org. Um, and that's the dig website. We post, you know, there are links there with our discoveries and media coverage and, and you know, publications. And so, yeah. Awesome. And how, how long will you be away for? Uh, well, I'll be away for almost three months, but the dig itself is, um, I'll be in the field about a month and a half altogether. Yeah. That's that's awesome. Well, happy yeah. packing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for uh thanks for inviting me to chat. Yeah, of course. I'm gonna stop the recording if you don't mind yeah, just hanging sure. out for one second. <laughs>